Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of the Gennaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out in the deep and let your nets, let down your nets for the, a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we told all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. My name is Paul. Like Britt said, if I haven't met you yet, um, I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Look forward to meeting you, uh, getting to know your name, uh, hearing some of your stories, sharing some of mine. Uh, we are an imperfect church. Uh, we are a church that doesn't, uh, that's not filled with people who have it all together, uh, as we'll talk about today. Um, and we are glad wherever you're coming from, the Lord knows. Um, and I'm so grateful that God's brought us together like this together this morning. Uh, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Luke, uh, which we began uh, at the beginning of Advent, beginning of December, uh, and we're walking through selections in the gospel of Luke, looking at the person and work of Jesus. Um, we're allowing uh, the, the disciple Luke to introduce us uh, by the spirit to Jesus. Uh, and this morning we are continuing that series and we're in Luke chapter five, a wonderful scene where Jesus calls the first disciples. And I want to begin uh, with this observation. I was talking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago, uh, and he, I forget if he was quoting someone or if he just said it himself. Uh, we were talking about uh, Psalm 8, uh, and he said, you know, it's interesting is nobody looks at the stars and then immediately thinks, man, I am awesome. All right. Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? When you look at the stars, if you're honest about what you're looking at, nobody does that and comes away and says, I am big and I am great. What have you encountered in your life that has brought you to a place of awe or a place of wonder? Um, this passage is very much about one of these encounters, uh, an encounter with the divine. Uh, that causes Peter to fall on his knees. As human beings, we are creatures who are constantly searching for meaning and significance. Uh, something, we're searching for something that is worth pursuing, that is worth identifying with. Something, every so often, we encounter something that gives us this sense of transcendence. Uh, we encounter something that we start pursuing, we start following, something that piques our curiosity, that causes us to lean in pokes on kind of asking questions of faith, of meaning, of significance, 
of relationship. And that's what this passage is about. It's about an encounter with the divine that changes everything for a group of men 2,000 years ago. Jesus performs this gift miracle where he gives instructions to people in a boat to cast out their net. They're a group of exhausted fishermen who've been trying this for hours and hours already. But for some reason, they're able to then pull in the biggest catch of their lives probably. But then right after they catch the biggest catch of their lives, their most successful moments as fishermen, they decide to leave it all behind and follow the one who gave them this good word. And so the question before us today, I think as I begin is who, or perhaps what, who are you following? If you haven't got your Bibles open yet, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter five. Uh, in the Pew Bibles, this is page 1023, 1023. Uh, we're in chapter five, verses one through 11. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus calling the first disciples, this is actually, I mean, it's a commonly known story. Many of us think of this scene primarily in terms of Matthew and Mark. They have basically identical accounts uh, where Jesus uh, says something. He, there, it's, Matthew and Mark describe the scene a little bit differently. They include some details that Luke doesn't include. Uh, they leave out a big detail, this miracle that Luke includes. So Luke actually gives us a complimentary picture of the calling of the first disciples. It's a pretty neat uh, picture. And so look with me at the story. We'll start in verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So that's a local name for the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus saw two boats on the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, this Simon is the Simon who will become Peter or the apostle Peter. So he gets into Simon's boat. He asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So pause there. Jesus's ministry at this time is in full swing. The crowd is pressing in on him to hear his preaching. He's been preaching and doing miracles and droves of people have come to hear the words of this man who has been threatening basically to change the world with his words. On account of this crowd, Jesus gets on a boat, pushes out into the lake and uses a boat as his pulpit uh, to speak to the crowds, to be given space to breathe and also so that his voice can carry over the water to a multitude of people. And after he's done teaching though, the crowds disperse presumably, and he sits down and he teaches. He has this moment of personal engagement with the people there with him in the boat. We pick up again in verse four. When he had finished speaking, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. So here is where we realize that Jesus had jumped into the boat with a bunch of exhausted fishermen. They'd been toiling all night, they hadn't caught anything, so they would have been physically tired and likewise, likely probably emotionally drained and stressed about provision because they hadn't caught any fish. This was their job. And to these people, Jesus says, go put out into the deep one more time. So master, Peter says, who so he addresses him respectfully, Jesus is clearly an empowered teacher, uh, likely a prophet. And so he says, master, we've already tried, right? We haven't caught anything. But he listens, even though it doesn't make sense to Peter, clearly. He listens at your word, he says, I will let down the nets. So picking up in verse six, and when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they'd taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And so 
After toiling all night and catching nothing, uh, these fishermen let down their nets one last time, but this time it's different. Of course, there's too many fish. The nets start to break and they ask their friends in the other boat to come and help. They have so many fish, it's a chaotic scene. When they pile and fill their boats, they threaten to sink, to swamp both of the boats. And Peter, who sees what's happening, falls on his knees and confesses his unworthiness for such a generous blessing. But then Jesus responds to Peter with grace and promise. Verse 10, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they'd brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So that's the passage that's before us. And in the rest of our time this morning, there's four things that I have for us that I wanna point out for us that I think we see in this passage. So let's jump right in. The first thing is this. Christianity is about following the God who provides. Christianity is about following the one who provides. The first thing that strikes us about the story is that it's the story of a miracle. Of the different kinds of miracles that Jesus performs, this is a gift miracle, similar to the feeding of the 5,000, if you're familiar with that story, or the turning of water into, into wine. Jesus is demonstrating the miraculous provision of God for his people, for his children. And unlike those two examples that I just gave, though, we don't know how this miracle happens. We technically don't know how the others happen, but we're, there's, there's a little bit more of an indication in the mechanism where when Jesus feeds the 5,000, there's a physical miracle that takes place. A little bit of food somehow turns through the power of God into enough food to, to feed thousands. In the turning of water in the wine, somehow, miraculously, the water physically turns into wine. But here, we're not told, Jesus doesn't pray and then do this miracle. He doesn't bless the fish and then send them fishing. Um, he just says, go try one more time. So we don't know, did Jesus miraculously cause the fish to be there? Did he just know that they were there? There's, uh, you wouldn't be, you, maybe you would be surprised at how many people have very long-winded opinions about what this is, but I think that it's clear the general consensus is that this is a miracle that, that doesn't, not so much about, a, about Jesus demonstrating his divine power. This is a miracle that testifies to Jesus' divine knowledge. This is a miracle of knowledge. Jesus knew that the fish would be there. And in the eyes of the fishermen, so, if, so if think about it for just a minute. In the eyes of these fishermen, Jesus is essentially an itinerant preacher. Right? So he's likely a prophet uh, traveling around preaching about the kingdom of God. But when he finishes teaching, he turns to this group of professionals who have an empty boat after a whole night of fishing and tells them, how about you go try one more time? Just throw your net into the water. I don't want to trivialize this scene, but I want you to picture me as a pastor coming up and giving you a piece of advice technically about your job. Picture maybe you're a pipeline engineer and I hear that you've been struggling with issues of pressure in your gas pipeline um, and you just can't get the pressure high enough to keep integrity, whatever, I don't know. And I come up to you and say, uh, <laughs> I come up to you and say, did you, how about you just try turning the valve? And then I turned it into an object lesson, say, you know what, right now you're moving oil, but you're going to go to moving missionaries from one place to another. You know, if I like picture me as a preacher coming up to you to give you a technical piece of advice about your job. Again, not to trivialize this scene, but Jesus is saying to these fishermen, just throw your net in the water. Peter's reaction is unsurprising. We've been doing all this. We've been doing this all night. Jesus, we've, we know how fishing works but he does respectfully submit to the word of Jesus. At your word, I'll let down the nets. And so they caught so many fish 
that they almost swamped their boats. So how does this miracle happen? Jesus clearly knows more than they do. I think this is the focus of the miracle that Jesus knows all. He knows more about fishing than the fishermen do. He knows where the fish are and he knows where the fish aren't. He knows when their efforts will be fruitful and when their efforts won't. So the question is, what do you know most about? What are you an expert in? Um, Are you acquainted with the limits of your knowledge? Do you know that you don't know when you're going to be fruitful, but that only God knows? Think about your job. Do you know whether the work that you're doing right now is gonna get you a raise or if it's gonna enable you to keep your job? Picture your kids. Do you know, like fully, whether the thing that you're doing right now is going to pay off or is it going to be something that you have to recover from later? Think about your pursuits in general. Do you know that what you're doing right now is going to make you happier or more at peace or going to lead to more distraction and less fulfillment? God knows all of these things. He knows more than you about the thing that you're an expert on. The focus of the miracle is on Jesus's divine knowledge and to get what I, to what I believe is the main point of this story, what does Jesus do? Or the main point, that I, the first thing that I wanna point out, what does Jesus do with this knowledge? He shares it. Doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it in a way that leads to this miraculous and generous provision. Throughout the Bible, God is presented as a father who provides for his children. And here we have a prime example of God providing for exhausted people. At the heart of the promise that God makes through Christ is the promise of provision, a bountiful, plentiful blessing. Of course, I'm not talking about what's commonly referred to as the prosperity gospel, that if you're just righteous and upright and you do good, then God will give you what you want. The Bible has many stories that cut against the grain of that kind of teaching. The disciple Stephen, who's stoned for his faith, is enjoying the blessing of the the fullness of joy as he dies. Picture the Apostle Paul. We did a series through the book of Philippians last fall. Last fall, where the Apostle Paul is talking about the joy that God has provided while he's locked in prison. Indeed, even in this story, which is about material provision, we see that sometimes the provision doesn't come exactly how we might want it to come. I don't know about you, but if I were one of these fishermen, I probably would have preferred more sustained, gradual provision, if you know what I mean. I'd rather have been given a smaller number of fish each day than nothing for an extended period of time and then an overwhelming amount of fish that winds up breaking the nets that I have been using. I would prefer something that I could plan on, something I could rely on and understand. Um, God provides for us often in ways that are not exactly what, the way that we might have chosen for him to. And he does so in order to teach us, you think you know best, but you don't. You need to trust me. God in this miracle, uh, we're appointed to Jesus's knowledge. We see that Jesus knows more than these fishermen about their own jobs. And rather than keeping that knowledge to himself, he shares it for the sake of their blessing. And for what purpose ultimately is to show that he, they, uh, for, to teach them to trust him. Follow me and I'll show you where to cast your net. Follow me and I will make you fruitful. You can trust me. Perhaps the biggest lie that I think we're presented with today is the truth, is that truth itself is up for you to discover. Truth is for you to discover for yourself. That the way to being a successful, thoughtful, respectable human being is to come out from under the oppression of the authority and opinions of others 
of what other people say that you should be, think, or do, and to discover truth and meaning for yourself. The promise is that you can do it, and the teaching, the invitation, is that you should do it for yourself. The problem is that if we drill down to the marrow of that promise, this is a really harsh pursuit. The God of self-actualization and and self-reliance is a harsh God, a stingy giver who takes way more than he gives. Life in pursuit of self-sufficiency and self-actualization is a constant proving ground. Instead of attaining to peace and satisfaction, pursuing self-reliance and a fulfilled life in line with your truth is marked by constant toil and striving. The promise is that you'll find true belonging and peace that way, but that belonging and peace often proves to be ever elusive. Best case scenario in this way of seeing the world is that success is accessible only to the few who have access to wealth and power. It's the best case scenario. But then even in that situation, when you think about people who are in that circumstance, the wealthy or the powerful today, is it true that their lives are marked by belonging and peace? Probably not. When Jesus comes to these disciples exhausted at the end of a night of fruitless toil, likely at their wit's end, he provides richly. The invitation he makes to them is the invitation to leave their pursuit of self-sufficiency to leave their pursuit of self-sustained stability in favor of God-sustained sufficiency. They're leaving the kingdom of man, the kingdom of self, and being invited into the kingdom of God. They have no idea what it's going to look like. All they know is that this is the one who can be trusted. And they take the offer. And this way we can see that this is a scene that points to more than just this immediate situation. It's more than just a group of tired, discouraged fishermen to whom Jesus gives a plentiful harvest of fish. This is a group of people who've been striving their whole lives to do it themselves, who have hit the wall that this inevitably leads to, the wall that teaches us that we can't. And I think this is why Peter responds the way that he does, which brings us to the second thing. We are called to account merely by the presence of Jesus. Let me explain. Notice this scene. It's amazing, I think how the appearance of Jesus puts everything else in perspective. So look again at verse six. And when they had done this, they cast out their nets. They enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. So you would think that Peter would be right in there with these other fishermen trying to resolve this chaotic scene. You would think that Peter would be right in the thick of it trying to fix the problem, but that's not what we see. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Rather than jumping to action and helping out, Peter falls at his knees. As I was studying this passage over this course of this week, I read this part over and over again, and I asked the question of myself, Do I know what's most important? Like, do I really know what's most important? We're a relatively young church. We have a number of members in their 20s, 40s, 50s, 60s, but the bulk of our members are in our 30s. And there's a lesson that you learn in your 30s that you're never really gonna fully have things figured out, but that the importance is not figuring things out, the importance is prioritization. And so hopefully, my hope is that we're learning as a church, that I'm learning, that Lindsay and I are learning, 
what it looks like to put the most important things first. And I'm seeing Peter here who clearly sees what's most important, even when other chaos seems to be beckoning. I'm asking, do I know? Do I really know what's most important? Peter gets it here. We're told in verse eight that Simon Peter saw it. So evidently there's more than simply just physically seeing things. He sees and he realizes what's happening. Jesus has demonstrated the glory of God right here in Peter's fishing boat. And Peter hits his knees. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And now, this isn't Peter saying, go away, Jesus. Like literally, he's not saying to Jesus, literally, please leave right now. Um, This is an idiomatic expression. So it's an idiom that probably meant something along the lines of, I'm not worthy, perhaps even forgive me, but certainly something along the lines of, what is a holy one like you doing with a sinner like me? That's what this phrase means. What business do you have being with me or what business do I have being in your presence? That's what Peter's saying. He's confronted by the righteousness and holiness and goodness of God and realizes I do not measure up to this. At this point in the gospel of Luke, um, here at the time of his calling, Peter referring to Jesus as Lord, I do wanna make this as a caveat. He's, not, he's probably not confessing Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. This is early on, we know If you're familiar with the story of the gospels, it takes the disciples a long time to actually catch up to Jesus's teaching. And so Peter in saying, Lord here is not from the outset saying you are the Messiah, but uh, he may may have, but it's probably not the case. Um, What we do know is that Jesus knows, or that Peter knows that he's in the presence of a man sent from God and that the blessing of God has been brought right to him and he has overcome with awe. What is someone like you doing with someone like me? it's important to pause for a moment and acknowledge that this is probably a difficult statement for us to make today. Speaking again about just the culture in which we live, we're in an age in which we're told to celebrate who we are. And in in today's world, the desire to change or to consider yourself not good enough is anathema, is forbidden, right? In our culture, it's very frowned upon. It's tantamount to self-betrayal. When I was growing up, um, I grew up in a non-Christian home, uh, loved my parents. My mom was one of my biggest cheerleaders. Uh, over and over again, she would tell me that I was perfect, that the world was my oyster, that I could do anything. And in many ways, this is a wonderful gift. Right? In my childhood, I never have had in my entire life, I've never had to wonder whether my mother loves me. And I'm very grateful for that. But one of the universal aspects of the human experience is the pervasive thought in the back of our minds that we're not good enough that we're an inconvenience to the people around us, that we do not measure up. If you think any of these things and you think that you're the only one thinking that, as kind of a perverse encouragement, you're not the only one. It's all of us. In today's world, the antidote that we're so often given to these kinds of thoughts is just being told that we're wrong. You are good enough. You know, everyone around you loves to be around you. The problem is that deep down, these things are true. We were made, according to the Bible, for glory. And we fall short of that glory on account of our sin. In this way, Peter is actually spot on when he says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. I don't belong in your presence. But look at how Jesus responds. 
He doesn't argue with Peter the way that today's culture might expect him to. No, Peter, you're worthy to be in God's presence. Stop talking like that. He doesn't argue with him. But perhaps more surprisingly, he doesn't do what Peter is probably expecting. When Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, Jesus doesn't turn away and say, you're right, I'm out of here. No, he says, do not be afraid. Whenever angels appear in the Bible, um, they bring the presence of heaven, like a heavenly being comes in the face, uh, in the, into the presence of a human being. The most often, like the reaction is always fear, terror. I am not, like Peter's response is perfectly appropriate and in line with all of the other angelic appearances in scripture. And so often, most often, the first thing an angel will say, someone sent from heaven will say is, don't be afraid. I'm here. You picture Jesus or, or the angel appearing to Mary to promise, don't be afraid. The appropriate response to a heavenly being is fear. And if we think about this for a moment, Peter is exhausted. He's been toiling all night with no catch. Indeed, he's been toiling all his life with very little to show for it. And here God comes before him with this rich and abundant blessing. And Peter says, I've got no business receiving this blessing from you. I don't, I don't deserve this. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't chastise him. He calms him. He doesn't turn away. He draws close. I came here for you, Peter. Yes, you're a sinner, but I came to take your filthy rags of sin away and replace them with a robe of righteousness. This is, I have come for sinners like you. I know so many people who are suffering in loneliness and isolation right now. We have no permission in our culture to engage with the disappointment of our life circumstances. We have no permission from the world around us to feel disappointment, to feel our sense of unworthiness and to tease that out and see what that actually means. As a result, there's a lot of loneliness. We gotta put on a good face. We gotta make it seem like we've got things together that we are in pursuit of the American dream of self-sufficiency, even in the church. So often, too often, we have to make it seem like we've got our faith together. We've got the questions answered. We're experiencing trusting God, experiencing joy. But if you look at Jesus, Jesus draws near to those who are hurting. He comes to Peter, sitting there in the boat with him, and proverbially, pr proverbially as it were, holds out his hand. He says, no, I'm, I'm here for you. In a world where so many look down on us with judgment or give us advice, in order for, to, to, to show us how to pick ourselves up and fix our lives. Jesus looks upon us with grace and mercy and says, I'm here for you and I'll take care of the rest. I will lead you by the hand. I've got this from here. Guys, what kind of person does this? What kind of person gives things away for free, truly for free? What kind of person extends the hand of friendship to people who are utterly unlike him or her? who have really no business, don't deserve to be in his presence. What kind of person is this? This is the kind of person Jesus is. When we look at Peter's response, we see a man who's been deeply humbled before the living God who concludes, I am not worthy of this grace. Peter's response isn't, finally God sees the potential in me and he's ready to put me to work. Instead, it's, oh God, depart from me for I'm not worthy. It is this place of humility, this place of surrender, this place of honesty where you let go of all pretense and own your weaknesses. This is where God meets us with mercy and grace. Picture the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. 
later on in Luke chapter 19, where, you're, where Jesus tells a story of two men in a temple. The Pharisee who goes up front and says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this man, a sinner. And the, the, the tax collector is sitting, at, sitting far off, is what the text says. He's sitting far off, not even lifting his eyes, beating his chest, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. And Jesus tells the point of the parable, I tell you, he went away justified, not the Pharisee. The invitation of Jesus in this passage is to a changed life by his grace and mercy. And there is no way to access this mercy and grace of Jesus except through repentance, through humility, through surrender, like we just sang about. Think for a moment about what comes next in Luke chapter five. Luke gives us three stories. We'll talk about uh, some of this, a man healed from leprosy, the healing of the paraplegic and forgiveness of his sins and the restoration of Levi, the tax collector. So Jesus starts chapter five with the invitation of the disciples and gives these three stories of healing. And then he gives this, the big point of what he was doing in all of these things. Luke chapter five, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So that's the point. What we see here is Jesus inviting to a whole new kind of life. And when we come to Jesus in honesty, in humble submission, we see that Jesus doesn't bring condemnation. He doesn't leave us or depart from us like we think he should. Instead, he draws near. Just like Jesus said in John 3, not 16, but 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus came to bring salvation, to shower us with grace and mercy. And that's the third thing that we see. Jesus responds to Peter with grace. And then continuing on to the fourth thing, picking up in verse eight again, continuing to the end, we read this. But when Simon Peter saw it, Speaking about this miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. That's a word that could mean men and women, people. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So we've looked at Jesus performing the miracle and we've seen that Christianity is an invitation to follow the one who provides. We've looked at Peter's confession of unworthiness and we've seen that when we're brought before Jesus, we are called to account. We've looked at the first part of Jesus's gentle response and seen that this is precisely the place where we see and receive the grace of Jesus. And now as we look at the rest of the passage, we see the fourth thing, the wonderful promise of Jesus that as recipients of God's grace, we are sent to be distributors of that grace to others. Notice how Jesus says this. He says, do not be afraid to Peter. And then he simply says, from now on, you will be catching men. He doesn't say from now on, you'll be trying to catch men and we'll see how it goes. He doesn't invite Peter to the trying grounds. He invites Peter to an empowered ministry. He says, from now on, you will be catching men. As Matthew and Mark record this, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In this, we see that Jesus's invitation was not just from something, but it was also to something. When Jesus came into the world to teach and proclaim salvation to those who had been toiling their whole lives and were exhausted, he didn't say, okay, it's time to stop working. 
Listen to what he says. One of the most famous sayings of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. He says this, Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's one of the most famous sayings of Jesus about his invitation. Jesus came to give us rest. Into an exhausted world, this is a huge relief. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to give us rest. But then he says, take my yoke upon you. Hang on a minute. Yoke is a tool used for work. Right? Take my yoke upon me and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly and I will give rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you were made for work. So salvation is not from work. We're not saved to the couch. But your work, Jesus is saying, doing your work without me is in vain. It will never bear the fruit that you are straining so hard to bear. You know what a yoke is. A yoke, the, the picture of a yoke is when you're picture a, a village that doesn't have running water uh, and you have people who travel, who walk with buckets to get water from a well and bring the, the water back to their home. So a yoke is something that actually makes that far easier. Right? So instead of having to carry a bucket of water on your head or carrying it like this and sloshing water off the edges, you're given something that sits over and you can carry a lot more weight over your shoulders than you can without carrying it on your shoulders. So it's, just, it's a board of wood, it's very simple, but it's a tool that multiplies our effort. Right? It, it makes our work far more efficient in physics terms. The image there is similar to the one in our passage. Jesus says, take my yoke for my burden is easy. And here, as, as fishermen straining and straining and straining, Jesus says, just listen to where I tell you to put your net and you're gonna catch way more than you ever could without me. It's important to note that the image of fishing for men touches a key image from the Old Testament about God's work among his people. So in the story of ancient Israel, God's people, uh, uh, so Israel is God's people and leading up to the arrival of Jesus in the Old Testament, there's a series of ups and downs. There's faithful kings and unfaithful kings. There's righteous, there's seasons of righteousness where things are going well and seasons of unrighteousness where things are going poorly. And ultimately God's people are scattered in exile by the judgment of God among the sea of Gentiles, as it were. The prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Habakkuk each use an image of a fish hook when God describes what he's going to do to save his people. Now the fish hook image often occurs in a negative sense in terms of judgment, but within a larger context of God promising to gather and rescue his people. Jeremiah gives us the clearest backdrop for these words of Jesus in our passage. Listen to what Jeremiah says in chapter 16. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declare the Lord, and they shall catch them. So God's promise to his people in exile scattered among the nations, which is described as the sea of Gentiles. God promises through Jeremiah, I'm sending for many fishers who will go and catch my fish and bring them back. God's people had been waiting for the day when God would send these fishers to catch and gather his people together with an image of yanking people out of danger, grabbing them by the hook and hooking them out of their pursuits. Who are these people going to be? Jesus answered that question here. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Follow me 
and I will make you fishers of men. You see, the picture that we get in the Bible is a picture of people in danger. Jesus in his ministry, uh, at one point in his ministry, is described as looking around and weeping because he saw the crowds around him as, the, as a flock of sheep without a shepherd, with an en- enemy prowling around like a lion ready to devour. Elsewhere in the Bible, God's people are described as a sea full of fish who are outmatched by Leviathan, who is a sea monster who we see in the Psalms and Isaiah, Job, Revelation. But into this world of danger, Jesus comes as the good shepherd to chase down his lost sheep and preserve them under his care and protection and to send them out as a crop of new shepherds to continue this work. Similarly here, into this world of danger, Jesus comes as the master fisherman to yank the lost fish out of the mouth of Leviathan and then to send a whole new gaggle of fishermen and women to go out and continue that work. Jesus's invitation to Peter, in other words, is a commissioning, a calling into a new vocation. As a recipient of the grace of Jesus, Peter has been made into a grace-bearing witness to Jesus. So just as Jesus was sent into the world to bring the grace of God, so too he sends his followers into the world as recipients of grace, bringing that grace to all those they meet. And it's a tall order. The nets will break. Peter sees this. A number of commentators pointed out that Peter understands the object lesson. Peter is being sent to do something that will ultimately break him. And we know that later in his life, Peter is crucified on account of the ministry that he is doing for for, for the sake of Jesus. But as Jesus later explains, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The promise of God is that you have been giving yourself to all kinds of pursuits. All of you are exhausted and weary and heavy laden, and I am inviting you to come to me so that I can place my yoke upon your shoulders and you can work and bear the fruit that you were created to bear. The glory which you fall short of is the glory that I have come to restore. The garment of sin, stained with sin that you are currently wearing, I have come to take that off and replace it with a robe of righteousness and send you as heralds, angels into the world. Angels is a word that just means sent ones from God. So the invitation of Jesus is to come to the one who provides. The reason that he can provide is because he knows exactly what you need. Don't follow the way of the world, which promises fulfillment, but only gives scraps and takes far more. Jesus not only holds truth, but he is generous. He is there to provide all that you need. Jesus often calls us to do things that we think don't make sense. These are professional fishermen. Jesus gives them something and they say, this doesn't make sense, but we'll take you at your word. And that's often how Jesus operates in the world by asking us to do things. For example, Jesus says, how many, when, when Peter asks him, how many times am I, Jesus teaches them that they need to forgive one another. And Peter says, well, how many times? And Jesus says, Peter says, should I forgive my brother seven times? Like that many times, thinking that he's being generous. And Jesus says, I tell you, you got to forgive your brother 70 times seven. But aren't I going to be enabling my brother, Jesus, if I just keep forgiving him? But none of us knows which of those times will be fruitful. Maybe the third time you forgive your brother, that will be a time that actually brings him to repentance on account of your grace. Maybe the 37th time though. Why do we keep, God, Jesus, I've forgiven him over and over again. I've been toiling all night to forgive my brother. Just one more time. Jesus sometimes asks us to do things that don't make sense, but his blessing, the blessing that he promises, if we take him at his word is more sometimes than we can handle. 
he gave a whole lot of fish to these fishermen. Just as the disciples have been striving their whole lives, so too have we. But here is the one who has come to give us everything we've been looking for and more. So come to the one who provides. Come to the one, and when we come to him, understand that you will be brought to account. It's a risky thing to come to Jesus and to be exposed for who you really are in a way that strips down pretense, in a way that makes us ask the questions, am I worthy? And we have to come to the answer of no. But as we come to him, as we say many weeks in our time of confession on Sunday mornings, when we come to him and ask him to forgive us for our sins, you know what he says? Yes, I forgive you. You are not worthy, but I have died to make you worthy. So come to the one who calls you to account, but then responds with words of grace and mercy. Do not be afraid. And watch as he makes you fruitful. Sojourn, my hope, our hope, the teaching, the invitation in this passage is for us to simply watch as God makes us fruitful as we walk after him step after step. Notice at the end, verse 11 says this. It says, when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The question I think that this leaves us with is, did they, did they understand everything? Like, had Jesus, did they understand what they were saying yes to? Absolutely not. But they left everything because they got a glimpse of glory that righted their perspective, not just of themselves, but of life in general. They saw what was most important. And I want to kind of leave us with this question, Sojourn. I think this is something we need to sit in. Right now, many of us are busier than we've ever been. And I think that we get to see this passage seeing this passage of Peter who's probably busier than he's ever been. He didn't have a moment to take a break and get some quiet time and engage with the Lord. He was in the middle of a stressed out, maxed out, unfruitful night of fishing when Jesus chose to encounter him. And Peter's takeaway wasn't, no, I need to wait until I get more me time. I need to wait till I'm better rested. Peter's response was to simply fall on his knees in exhaustion. Now is the time, Sojourn, when you, when I need to learn how to prioritize. We can't wait for things to calm down. We can't look at a garden covered with weeds and say, I'm gonna wait until those weeds die before I start planting new flowers. Now is the time, precisely when it's covered with weeds to go out and begin the work one step at a time, one day at a time, moment by moment, faithfully saying, I don't know what this is gonna look like when I'm done with it, but today's the day to start. And here's the thing, as Jesus invites us to follow him, uh, this journey is a journey that is taken one step at a time. You know, it's not gonna work. In terms of the invitation of Jesus, what's not gonna work, what the intention isn't, is a New Year's resolution approaching, uh, approach to following Jesus. This is mostly for Christians in the room. When we ask the question of, do I know what's most important? When we ask the question, when we look at our lives and we look at the past week of our lives and we consider all of the free time we had and how we spent our free time and we think and we experience the conviction of the spirit of thinking, man, this passage is inviting me to put Jesus before everything else in my life. You know, it's not going to work is the New Year's resolution approach. Okay, I need to come away from this and I need to come up with a list of 10 things. I'm going to come up with a brand new calendar and a weekly calendar that I'm going to follow. I'm gonna come up with a list of 50 people who I'm gonna reach out to and start praying for. I'm gonna come up with all of these different things. That's not what Jesus is inviting the disciples to. He doesn't sit and, laden and, and lay expectations on their shoulders and then say, come follow me. He says, stop, go catch some fish and then come follow me. 
The life of following Jesus, brothers and sisters, friends, is a life of following Jesus one step at a time. Oftentimes, we don't know what we're saying yes to. And so what is that thing for you this week? What's that one next step? The question of this passage isn't, was it, what is your New Year's resolution? The question is, who are you following? And then what's the next step that you're going to take in following the one who provides everything for you, who calls you to account and then extends words of grace and mercy, and then who invites you to participate with him in the building of his kingdom? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word here in Luke chapter 5. Thank you for the invitation that you give us to come and follow you. Thank you, Lord, that while there is in many ways a great sense of urgency in the gospel, thank you that there's no sense of rush that we get from you. You invite us to follow you and you are patient with us as we follow one step at a time, as we start walking and we trip a few times, we slide backwards sometimes. You continually respond to us with grace and mercy and patience. Lord, I pray that you would give us a taste of your glory as we behold your glory through your word. You are God who provides richly. When we come into your presence, we are called to account. And we too, like Peter, are stunned when you respond to our unworthiness, not with condemnation, but with mercy and grace. I pray that you would help us to drink this grace to the full today, right now, in a way that empowers us and sends us to be grace bearers into the world. We love you. Please continue your ministry in our hearts by your spirit as we continue to chew on and meditate on your word as we go from here today. We ask for our good, for your glory, in Christ's name. Amen.